Hey guys, this is Drake. Thanks so much for tuning in to our City Church podcast here. It's an honor to have you. Hey, at the end of this episode, we'd love for you to take a moment, subscribe to this podcast channel if you haven't already. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel so we can continue to serve you with content that we're putting out on a weekly basis. And in addition, if we can serve you in any way or connect with you in community in any way, you can visit our website at citychurchboulder.com and we would love to connect with you there. And lastly, and most importantly, I hope this content is helpful to you. It's encouraging, it's inspiring, and you leave better than you showed up. Enjoy. We're continuing our series on witness, and you can go back and catch kind of the weeks building up to today on our podcast, our YouTube channel, but a couple of quick notes for you before we get into today's talk. Um, Again, Fitz said it well, no matter where you're walking in on your spiritual journey, you're loved, safe, and welcome. And our desire is to simply create space, meet you where you are, and allow you to take some next steps in your spiritual journey. We are a Jesus people here. We are in love with Jesus, and we love following Jesus, and we love also helping people begin to discover what it means to follow Jesus. And so uh, there are no difficult questions off the table. There's no space or uh, questions that we ignore or kind of avoid. We really want to create space as community to really understand for ourselves what does it mean to follow Jesus? And so no matter where you're walking in, hopefully you find that space both through our weekend gatherings and through one-on-one meetups and our city groups. Um, but a couple of quick notes as we continue in this series. Next week, super pumped. I have a friend, one of my mentors and coaches coming out from Denver. He's been a missionary all over the world, and now he's in Denver helping make disciples being a part of some really cool church planting movements, and he's going to be here next week encouraging us to continue to be witnesses, and his story is super cool. Last week, you got to hear from Maddie. Did Maddie crush it or what? Maddie crushed it, crushed it. And so Maddie last week talked about dripping God, and if you missed that message, you can go back on the YouTube or podcast and, and pick that up, but there's some tools. If you need any of the tools from this series, they're out in the lobby, kind of a little paradigm of how to think about dripping God into the spaces where you live, work, and play. Maddie used this language of, as a witness, we're going to drip God. That's intentionally using our words and our actions to point people to the life and the love of Jesus. So this tool's out there. A couple of weeks ago, we also looked at uh, the emphasis on prayer and starting in that space out of love for people. So that prayer calendar tool is also in the lobby. So if you need any of those, they're all for you. Um, but what's really cool, Maddie shared a story last week, and I just want you to dream with me for a little bit. Because here at at City Church, we exist to help people find their way to God from where they are by practicing the way of Jesus together in Boulder. And in that space of practicing the way of Jesus, we are after his heart of being formed by him and introducing other people to him. And Maddie had this really cool story of kind of accidentally being a witness. I don't know if you guys remember that, but she was like, her roommate kind of got to just watch her be a follower of Jesus. And kind of the goodness, the beauty of following Jesus began to rub off on her roommate. And eventually she got to introduce her roommate to Jesus. Fast forward a couple of months, she's baptizing her roommate in Boulder. Creek, and her roommate becomes an, an incredible part of the City Church community, and then eventually moved to Maryland, where now she's following Jesus and living on mission in that space. And I just, and I thought it was a really cool space that Maddie was like, that kind of accidentally happened, and God was already doing that, and she just kind of got to be a part of it. And so I just want you to dream with me, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, imagine if everyone in the room had that story this year. Like, imagine if that was, like, just this year alone, what if every single person in the room, when you start to look at the places where you live, work, and play— What if God used you to introduce someone in those spheres of influence to Jesus and you get to baptize your friend in in Boulder Creek and you get to get out of the way and watch them baptize someone else because of the influence you've had on their life? What if that was the story that God wants to write to this community? 
That'd be super cool, wouldn't it? To baptize someone in your circle of influence because they made a decision to follow Jesus because of how God used you in their life. And that, I think, is God's heartbeat over and over again. It's Jesus' heart for people who are far from him. And so as we are continuing in this series today, I want to transition to just a, a different posture or maybe a, a different angle, a tension that I'm feeling internally. Today can be a, a space of just honest confession for me, and then we can see if you feel the same way. So it might just be me getting stuff off my chest, and that's cool. Thanks for being here for my therapy session. If not, then hopefully this is helpful to you. But we've been talking a lot about being a witness and the video explains it well, but we've not necessarily talked about other people's responses to what happens when you choose to be a witness, right? Because you and I have control over it. We've been kind of been praying about, oh, let's be bold about our faith and just love and serve people well, because Jesus really did raise from the dead, and he really is good, and he really does love us, and he really can save us from sin, and he really has a good and perfect plan for our lives, and that's really good news that we can share with the world, and we should want to share with the world. But what we don't have control over is how the world around us responds to that good news. We have control over how we witness, right? Which we talked about. Like we talked about, hey, there's some weird and uncomfortable ways. In fact, there's a lot of ways that people have got it wrong, oh, especially in the West, that we're like, wow, whatever that version of evangelism or witnessing or whatever words you want to use, that's not me and I'm not about that. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. But at the end of the day, you and I don't have control over how people respond. And so depending on where you're from, kind of your faith background, um, I didn't grow up in church, but um, when I came to a place where I made the decision to follow Jesus, I was in a, a more conservative place where kind of the culture around us was still favorable to Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? There's kind of like some, some I don't like the stereotype, but some southern states, you know, that have a little bit more favor toward the disposition of Christianity and maybe the values. And again, not that everyone is a follower of Jesus but there seems to be a favor in the community or in those cities toward that. There's also some other spaces in, in the country that we live in um, where, where people aren't necessarily opposed to you following Jesus, but it's just kind of weird, right? Like, and, and so maybe you have some family, some friends, some circles, or maybe where you're from, where, where like the following Jesus thing is just kind of squinted at. Like, that's just a weird thing to do. Like, it's not a really a threat. You're not really dangerous, but following Jesus is a strange thing. And then there are other places in our world, and this is increasing in number, where some people consider it a threat and a hindrance to the society that's, that's trying to be built around us, that following Jesus is actually maybe what's wrong with some of this country. And again, you might not feel that hostility immediately, but those places are growing and they begin to exist, maybe even in the, so maybe not in like your backyard, but maybe the social media feeds you find yourself on. It's amazing how those can kind of jump across. And so we have these different spaces of how people respond to you and I following Jesus. And it's one thing when you keep it to yourself and you keep it on the inside and you do you, because we're all about that, as long as it doesn't have any bearing on anything around me. But when you begin to take Jesus seriously and his commands seriously to obey and make disciples and to be a witness, to bear witness, then it starts to get into places where it's maybe not always met with receptivity. Anybody else feel that? Yeah? All right, so here's, here's some places I have felt just internally, like this journey I've been on, this, and I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm slow to use the word emotional journey because I've like had an emotion once in my life, but... That's a joke. I'm an eight on the Enneagram, guys. It's, it's, it's hard for me, okay? But kind of the emotional journey that I've been on is I, I'm coming to find myself, this is just a, something I've noticed in me, there's like a little bit of, of maybe shyness or embarrassment 
when I find myself in a conversation, especially with someone who's not a follower of Jesus, when, when we start talking about specific ethical issues and then what the scriptures say and what it means to follow Jesus and what, what that belief in following Jesus has on the ethical issues of our day. And I kind of feel this internal space of like, you know, I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm constantly giving disclaimers, like, like okay, yeah, here's what, it, here's what I think Jesus teaches in the scriptures, but... And, and so I'm kind of like always posturing and moving around, trying to like soften what feels like the blow of maybe Jesus' ethical positions compared to the world around us. You guys feel that? Cool. All right. And then, and then there's another, I'm also just kind of disillusioned by some of the responses that we see in the world around us, right? Like, like meaning there are Jesus followers are people who claim to follow Jesus, and sometimes their responses are just so out of whack with the way of Jesus that I'm just like, wow, <laughs> that does not help. <laughs> Thank you so much. Could you please not, you know, put that sign away and go do something else with your life? Like, it, it, there's sometimes when you look around, I, I, was in a, I was in the park yesterday with my kids, and I was having a conversation with a, a guy that I just met, and, and he always, you know, we have this, hey, what do you do? And, oh, no big deal, I'm a pro athlete. I'm like, oh, cool, me too. And, you know, we're having that conversation. And then always, like, um, he, he, you know, they ask, hey, what do you do? Well, uh, you know, I wash cars. <laughs> no, you know, by default, like, oh, do I, do I go ahead and put the, the pastor card first? Hey, I'm a pastor here in Boulder. Oh, that's cool. Subject change. And then, you know, that, actually, this was cool. So it was a little bit of favor. And so then I got to ask him, like, hey, tell me about your faith background. And uh, he's like, oh, man, I grew up um, uh, like Scottish Catholic or something, uh, Irish Catholic, I think is what he, what he told me. And like the way he said it, I have no idea actually what that meant when he said it. Um, and if you're in the room, I apologize to him. Um, but when he said it, um, oh, I grew up, you know, Irish Catholic. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever that is. And, and I can tell how he said it, right? It's not a good thing, <laughs> right? Whatever it is, it's not a good thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, definitely. Whatever that is, that's not me, dog. Like, whatever we're talking about. And so I feel like I'm constantly kind of moving around, repositioning myself to say, hey, whatever version of Christianity, whatever version of Jesus following you've come to experience, that's not me. Like, I'm not that. So I kind of feel that tension all over the place. And then I'm also just kind of paralyzed by the complexity. Anybody else feel this crazy amount? Like, I feel like I need a master's degree in ethics and history and sociology and religion just to talk for 30 seconds to someone about how their weekend went, right? And so, like, it is so complex this day and age to have good conversations. And by the way, I think a lot of the hard stuff that people are walking through needs to be in the space of loving, compassionate conversations over just proclamation. Here's, here's what I believe. And then there's no space to, to dialogue and love the person in front of you. And so John, John Tyson, I heard him say it well. He said, if we're not careful, the pressures of the cultural moment that we're in will start to push our faith inward to make it personal and internal because of some of the challenges of navigating following Jesus in a postmodern culture. And again, the, the, the space is, hey, believe what you want to believe as long as you don't affect the current, maybe cultural or political or ideological agenda of the day. And I feel that. I, so I don't know if you guys feel it. I just want you to know I feel it, okay? And it's hard, and it's, in, and, and, and it's just, it's, it's kind of overwhelming at times. But there's also something inside of me that pauses over and over again, and that I think we lean on as a church together to say, listen, like, postmodern Western culture, I love you, 
but I cannot allow you to define what it means to follow Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. And so there's this tension, right? And some of you, you're on your spiritual journey, you're wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus, and you're wrestling, if you're going to follow Jesus, maybe even on some of these pivotal conversations and these pressures, and I totally get it. And I think what we need to do is, again, go back to Jesus rather than some of the other spaces of, well, how do I feel about this? When self is the highest and greatest authority and good, it makes it really hard to lean into Jesus. And so how do you bear witness? Here's the simple question today. How, how do you bear witness in a city that in some ways might want you to simply shut up about your faith? Again, not that anybody would say that out loud, but I mean, I think at the end of the day, if that's the posture at times, what does it look like to bear witness? Um, and so as we get into uh, today's conversation, what I want to do, I'll put it on the screen here, I want to talk about this, this transition of the word from witnesses to martyrs. Right? That, that word martus, to bear witness, is where we get the word martyr. And so how do we go from witnesses to martyrs? And what I want to do is look briefly today at an overview of this guy named Peter, who is a really close follower of Jesus and really relatable because he constantly got it wrong in following Jesus, and then he still was allowed to follow Jesus, and I dig that, right? Like, that's really helpful for me. And then also just the early church kind of following Peter. So from witnesses to martyrs, like, how do they go from that space? And so as we get into it, Luke is the author of, so those Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you, those are a gift to you if you don't have one, or you can download the YouVersion Bible app. And, and if you look at, uh, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then that's the third gospel in the New Testament, and then Acts, Luke is the author of both. Doctor, physician, incredibly smart dude, kind of taking an account of all the things of the life of Jesus. And he, we have the account of Luke, and then we have the account of the early church in the book of Acts. And he put those two, two together. If you have time, if you, you've been trying to figure out where, what you're going to do in your God time, like how where you're going to be reading in the scriptures on a daily basis, pick up Luke and then just go straight into Acts and like kind of just start to dig in and watch the thread of Luke's timelines. It's really amazing. But you can watch from Luke all the way through Acts, the timeline of Peter's life. And as we look at Peter's life, it's kind of interesting because he's just a fisherman. He's a nobody. He's not impressive. He's not religiously elite. He's not well-educated. Jesus gets in his boat preaching to crowds. There's so many people that they're kind of swarming him. So he like pushes out into the sea so that he can teach to all these people. And so then Peter's just like hostage in a boat with Jesus. And then he gets blown away by Jesus who he discovers is, is maybe God or at least a really impressive rabbi. And so then Peter begins to follow Jesus. He's invited to follow him. Later, Peter is chosen as one of the 12 apostles, which again, if you don't know Peter's story or, or the Jesus story, this is just like Jesus' 12 closest guys and kind of the guys that he's going to build the movement on. So these, are, these guys carry a lot of influence and a lot of authority. And what's really interesting is none of them look like the guys you would pick for your best team in dodgeball. Okay, so like it's, it's just interesting Except for James and John, those two dudes sound like guys you want on your dodgeball team. They're like, let's call fire down from heaven like those guys on my team. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So he, he gets chosen as an apostle, and then he has this revelatory moment. Like, you can go look at in chapter 9 of Luke when, when Jesus says, hey, here's who everybody else is saying that I am. People still don't know who Jesus is. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, he's kind of like just a loud mouth, speaks before he thinks. But in this moment, he gets it right, and he says, you're the Christ, you're the one that, that we've been waiting on. You're the one that God has sent to save and redeem the world. And, and then Jesus high-fives him and says, way to go. You got this one right. You know, gold star for you. And so we have this moment where, where he gets it right, which is super cool. And then right after Peter makes that claim, Jesus says these words in Luke 9. 
Jesus said to all of them, standing right there, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so Jesus spells out this invitation to follow him, which is an invitation to come and die. People are, you and I might, might kind of be softened to the image of a cross, but this would have been very confusing because Jesus would have just said he's going to go to the cross and the invitation is to follow him. That somehow in, in losing our lives for Jesus, we find it. And then fast forward to the end where Jesus is arrested and then crucified and in that space of all of his followers being disillusioned because they thought Jesus was God and now he's clearly not. Peter then goes so far to deny he ever even knew Jesus. So he started following Jesus. He claims he's the Christ. He's one of his 12 guys. He's really getting it. Jesus is, is arrested and Peter's like, I've never even, I don't even know Jesus who? Three different times. I don't know him. And then, in shame, he leaves, he weeps, he's broken for deny he ever even knew Jesus. And then three days later, something amazing happens. This very dead Jesus is resurrected from the dead, exactly like he said he would. And he stands before Jesus or Peter and the other apostles, proving that he's there, he even eats like a fish sandwich, just to like make sure they know that he's real, right? He's not like a ghost, he's not like an apparition. He's like, hey, you guys got any snacks? starving. Three days is a long time, right? Like, and so, so we have this moment of the very alive Jesus with holes in his hands, a hole in his side, standing before them as evidence of the one true king, like the video I was talking about, the ultimate witness of God's goodness. And so Peter goes from un unbelieving and running away to re-believing in Jesus, following Jesus, and then we see him and the early church begin to be bold in their faith, witnesses in the world around them. And if you get to the book of Acts, it starts out kind of cool, like a lot of people are starting to follow Jesus and there's very little resistance and then all of a sudden, bam, there is a ton of pushback and Peter's arrested and then James is killed and tons of these followers of Jesus begin to be persecuted. And so you fast forward and pretty early on in the life of the church after Jesus empowers the church with the Holy Spirit to bear witness in the world around them, persecution comes heavy and they're scattered, and they're hiding. And so you look at Peter's highlight reel, and at the end of his life, eventually, uh, church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy enough to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. And so the dude is crucified upside down and killed by Emperor Nero in his circus as a demonstration of Rome's power as well as um, this constant persecution on top of the church. And simultaneously, so that, that's Peter's story, and I give that to you because we're going to look at Peter's kind of uh, later letters in just a second, but I give you that story because Peter's highlight reel is reflective of pretty much every follower of Jesus that we see in the early church, that simultaneously, in the middle of a ton of persecution, hundreds of thousands of people are becoming Jesus followers as they're actually dying. And you've you got to ask the question with me, why in the world would so many people join the Jesus movement, put their faith in Jesus, begin to follow Jesus, if it would absolutely end in their suffering and possibly their death? When that, when that was a guarantee, when they're watching Christians die for their faith, 
Why would, so, why would others begin to follow Jesus? It's a really important question that you and I wrestle with. Why would they choose death with Jesus over life with Rome? That's the question on the table today. And I think it's because Jesus' words proved true. What was the central image of, of following Jesus? It was the cross, right? You guys tracking with me? Kind of the popular jewelry we have today? Cool tattoos? The cross was the central image. And so what did Jesus say? He said things like, like in Luke 6, he said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. I like it when all people speak well of me. <laughs> Jesus is warning us, be careful if everyone speaks well of you. Well, that doesn't... Hold on, Jesus. Where's the living water, Jesus? I don't know. <laughs> this is... Where's the multiply loaves and fish, Jesus? And he says, you're blessed when people reject you, when they hate you, when they revile your name in Luke 6. On my account, by the way, it's really important. Jesus says that we're blessed when we suffer for the name of Jesus, not just because you're a jerk, right? Like, like it's not like, oh yeah, every time something bad happens in your life, that's a blessing for you. No, like if you're an idiot and you can't be nice to people, that's your fault. But if you are living for Jesus in a loving way, and then experiencing rejection, he says, you're actually blessed. Here's, here's the words of Jesus verbatim from Luke 6. Um, he says, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. When's the last time you leaped for joy over anything? I don't, that's, a, that's a lot of energy to leap for joy. I mean, just imagine the energy. Rejoice when people say that they hate you. Leap for joy when you're suffering for my name because your reward is great in heaven because they also did the same to the prophets. Anybody feel that? Anybody confused? Anybody not really signing up for this version of following Jesus? It, it's, it's interesting. So if the, here, here's the deal. If the point of life is not pleasure, if the point of life is not happiness as defined by the American dream, if the point of life is not popularity, but if the point of life in Jesus' words is to know God, to know him intimately, to become like him, to become a person of love as defined by Jesus. If that's the point of life, then Jesus' statements begin to make sense. That in the middle of suffering, I could actually be formed into those things. And so let's fast forward for just a minute because I know you're tracking with me for a second, a little bit of history lesson. So today on planet Earth, there's roughly 150,000 people a year that die in the name of Jesus for their faith around the world. And you and I have just no ability to really even process that. That around the world today, many are following Jesus and are willing to lose their lives for this faith. And you and I, I don't face even close to that threat, right? That there is a rising hostility in the world that we live in, but it's nothing compared to that type of persecution around the world. Winston Churchill said, said it this way, at the end of World War, War II, he said that in the future, the nature of empire will change. That in the future, the empires, I'm sorry, the, the empires of the future will be empires of the mind. Meaning, meaning the wars of the future are gonna be less about territory and more about ideology. And so the spaces that you and I feel tension are maybe not for your physical lives, but there's still a rising hostility toward the way of Jesus. And so the worst I've ever had as following Jesus is that people don't like me. 
or they disagree with me, or they uh, think less of me because of following Jesus. And that sucks, and I don't like that. And so then I'm over here doing my little posture dance of trying to soften the blows, and well, this way and that way, and what it means to fall. And I'm just trying to get people to like me. And then in the early church and around the world, we've got brothers and sisters who die for their faith. And, and the only reason I say all of that is to help put in perspective maybe some of the tension that we feel that is very real. But there is a kind of death in bearing witness. That's, that's all I want to point out today. When you and I choose to follow Jesus, when we choose to bear witness, to simply be obedient to Jesus and bearing witness in the world around us, there is a kind of death. There is a way of taking up a cross that is absolutely at the forefront. And I don't want you to miss it. Jesus wasn't hiding those things. And so it might be that our reputation is on the line when we choose to follow Jesus. It might mean that others' moral view of us is on the line when we choose to follow Jesus. It might mean that our relationships are on the line when we choose to follow Jesus. It might mean that our career is on the line because we choose to follow Jesus. And the question is, are we willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus? And it's, and it's heavy, even in those spaces. Larry Hortado wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods, and uh, it's a really cool little book um, that deals with the space of kind of the distinctives of the early church up against Rome. And he would argue that it wasn't relevance and it wasn't relatability that made the church explosive because it wasn't just that people were dying for their faith, but the Jesus movement was exploding. Hundreds of thousands and then millions of people following Jesus in the middle of heavy persecution. So what was it that made this Jesus movement so attractive? And he would say it wasn't relevance, it wasn't relatability, it wasn't how cool the messages were, it wasn't how great the music was because they didn't have those things, or how, how orange the carpet was in the building. You know what I mean? It wasn't those things that really drew a crowd. What was it? He said it was their distinctiveness and their difference in the culture around them. So I, I just captured from his book five distinctives of the early church. He said, number one, it was multiracial and multiethnic, which was absurd it was crazy to think that everyone was welcome in this Jesus movement when there was constant divides. And this was incredibly liberating for many and incredibly offensive to many. Number two, it spread across socioeconomic lines, particularly with the poor and the marginalized. Or that the early church were the first to start hospitals, that, that the way that the church responded to those in need, those ostracized, was radically different than the way the rest of the world treated the poor and the widow, specifically women and children. And so it crossed all the socioeconomic lines. Number three, it was committed to advocacy against infant, uh, well, this is hard. It was committed to advocacy against infanticide and abortion, um, where, where it was very common in Roman culture to, abortion was a little more dangerous, so, so that was not as common, but you would just, if you didn't want a baby, you just tossed it on the garbage heap. And it either would die of, of neglect or be taken into slave trade or whatever the posture, and then the early church began to value all human life. This was starkly different than the culture around them. Number four, it was a sexual counterculture that up against the Roman culture where everything goes, and there's a lot of reading you can do on this, there was a sexual counterculture in the church that marriage 
And sexuality had a lane that was a gift from God, one man, one woman, in the context of marriage for life. That was totally countercultural. And number five, it was nonviolent, which was crazy because this was a world where might made right, and if someone disagreed with you, you punched them in the throat. That's how you win. That's still true today, by the way. Maybe not. Um, so so this, is, this might feel less radical to you because of Christianity's influence on the West that we often take for granted. But Tim Keller makes a cool observation of these five points from his book, and he says that it doesn't really fit into any kind of political structure that you and I experience today, right? The first, the first two kind of sound liberal, multiracial, multi-ethnic, socioeconomic lines. They sound like, if you're just looking at the political spectrum, they sound liberal. The second two, they sound conservative. And the last one just sounds like un-American. <laughs> That's what he says. Nonviolent. Are you kidding me? Get her done. All that stuff. You know, so, so here's the challenge is, is all of this in the early church didn't come from just their own efforts. This was the way of Jesus being practiced in community and it began to have a bearing on the world around them. And here's the point. There's no political party. There's no ideology on the planet today that captures Jesus' kingdom and his way of life to the point. Right? And, and, and you and I know that. As Jesus followers, our allegiance is with a different kind of king. And so these early Christians, they experienced the risen Jesus. They experienced his life in the kingdom. And they were willing to die over and over again for not only who they believed Jesus was, but for the life and the kingdom that he came to bring to this world. Everything Jesus had to offer, they were convinced everything Jesus had to offer was better than anything that Rome had to offer. Could you and I say that today? Everything that Jesus has to offer is better than anything the American dream has to offer, anything that materialism has to offer, anything that hedonism has to offer. That's really hard, because I like a lot of what is offered, <laughs> right? And so I'm encouraging you in the spaces of the distinctives that we see in the early church. But let me go to 1 Peter, because this is uh, some of Peter's words the, uh, before the, he, he was uh, crucified, urging the church in the middle of massive amounts of persecution, okay? So again, if you know that like, if you had the chance to write a letter to people who were dying for their faith, in hiding while still being bold and sharing it, what would you say? And here is Peter. Apostle Peter denied Jesus, refollowed Jesus, has been in prison multiple times, beaten in the name of Jesus, watched some of his best friends die in the name of Jesus, is about to die in the name of Jesus. And these are his encouraging words for the persecuted church. He says, dear friends, and I want you to hear the compassion in his voice. I urge you, this loving call, to lean in, to not miss it as foreigners and exiles. It's so interesting. These are identity statements. As followers of Jesus, they're metaphors of our identity, not being in the world around us or even in the identity we self-make, but in Jesus and his kingdom. This is that, that I, I am an Elkins and I'm an American, but first I am a Jesus follower. I'm a son of God. You're a daughter of God. And as a follower of Jesus, that informs how we think, how we react, how we look at life in front of us. All of my other identities are secondary to following Jesus. That's the point. And he really wants us to stick to that. But then he goes on. 
Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That's some strong language. Sinful desires, the other New Testament scripture authors call this your flesh. These kind of disoriented base appetites inside of every single one of us that are often good things that are then distorted into becoming damaging. And so there's all these different spaces and everyone in the room has different distorted desires that we struggle with. Something that was a good gift from God that has been distorted by sin. And he's saying, watch out for those because they're waging war against your soul. So it looks like the good gifts of drink and material possessions and enjoying the life around you. And then they get disoriented into greed and overconsumption without boundaries. It looks like pride when when a self-confidence and a comfort and a peace and identity with Jesus and in community elevates to a space of pride where because of my behavior or because of my socioeconomic status or because of my lineage, I think that I'm better than you, I know better than you, and all of a sudden prejudice or bigotry or contempt begin to creep into my heart. Disorder. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You feel these? Because, Because they're in me. It's, it's lust, these sexual desires that then are, are moving outside. Jesus called it lust. He says moving outside of the boundaries that God created them. To have sexual desire without boundaries. It's selfishness. When my comfort and my ultimate good becomes the highest and the best thing that I'm pursuing, and if anything gets in the way of that, we now have a problem. Whatever those are, whatever the base desires, those good things the good gifts that God has given us that have been distorted by sin, he says they're waging war against your very soul, meaning the person that Jesus is trying to help you become, the person he's committed to forming you into, these very desires are waging war against that formation. Do you guys feel that? The tension of I'm trying to become this, I'm trying to be patient and loving and compassionate, and then I'm not. And you're like, and, and, and it's not like it's static. It's not like, well, I got that. I didn't get this. It, it, right? it has bearing. What does it do? It affects our relationships to one another. It affects our relationship with God. He's like, this is not a neutral place. But check this out. I love this. Instead, verse 12, what do we do? He's not just giving you a list of things to avoid. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. He says, instead, instead, leave, live good lives. That word good can be translated beautiful or compelling. The word pagan, by the way, if that word like gives you the heebie-jeebies, um, that was like a normal term that was like self-identified Romans in their kind of pantheon of religion, self-identified as pagans, okay? So we don't call anyone pagans in our current culture, right? Bunch of pagans. I don't even, that, we don't want to use that language. But here it's not derogatory, to be clear, okay? What he's saying is those that are far from God live, live such good lives in the world around you. So don't isolate, don't insulate, don't hide from the world around you and try to keep your faith safe, live in the world around you, where you live, work, and play, live such good lives that, what happens? though they accuse you of doing wrong, see, I don't like that part. Live such good lives that they all love you. That's what I would love for him to say. And it's like, oh man, this Jesus thing is so cool. No, even though they might still accuse you of doing wrong, which in the Roman culture had its own list, 
But for you and I today, you might be accused of being on the wrong side of history. You might be accused of being a bigot for your particular views on scripture and authority, in particular around sexual ethics and, and gender. The word bigot is used a lot. The word bigots in the English dictionary is unreasonable attachment to a belief that results in prejudice toward others. And it's a very real reality when you and I submit to Jesus and his authority in our lives that people view you in that light, accuse you of what's wrong with the world, accuse you of being stupid or uneducated. He says, even though some of those things might be happening, they will see your good deeds. That you and I could live lives with such compassion, such conviction, that, that we meet people in the spaces where we live, work, and play, and we lavish them in truth and grace. Notice he doesn't say, people will hear your good sermons, but see your good deeds. And it's by living this incredibly good life that people begin to take notice. And, and Peter right here, I, I want you to catch it. He's riffing off of Jesus' language straight from Matthew 6. Our name as a church, city church, came from Matthew 6, where Jesus said, you are a light that can't be hidden, a city on a hill. And it's by your good works that people will glorify God. And Peter, as he recalls Jesus' words, this is not a posture of outrage or defensiveness but of love and bold, confident invitation to follow Jesus. And I, and I hope that you hear me, guys. In this series, the call to be a witness is not just to preach Jesus, but to become people who are good news. That when people experience us, even if they disagree with us, they experience us as good news people. Not just by what we say, by what we do. And by the way, this way of Jesus that Peter is encouraging goes from 120 people hiding in an upper room, fearing for their lives, to the most significant movement in human history, where billions are now following Jesus because of this. Michael Green, um, I, I recommended this book called How to Reach the West Again when we started this series. And in that, he quotes that 80% of evangelism in the early church was done simply by ordinary Christians just explaining their lives to their friends and family because they lived such radically different lives. They just got to often share why they lived that way. This goodness, this moral beauty, not perfection, but a beauty as they lean into Jesus and his way. And you have to remember, all in the early church, because of the persecution, they couldn't come to a weekend gathering and hear a message to help them kind of think through the ways of Jesus. In fact, in the middle of persecution, most of the early church was hiding. And so you didn't invite your neighbors and your friends to church because they might follow Jesus or they might tell the authorities and everyone dies. And so then how did people have exposure to the way of Jesus? By a Christian's public life how they did money, how they did marriage and parenting and relationships and politics and community. And the word witness, to bear witness, it just means you've seen something, you've experienced something very important, and you share it with others. And so you and I are not salespeople for Jesus, 
trying to figure out the best marketing campaign and rub off the, the hard edges and then present it in a way that's digestible. We're not trying to close the deal for Jesus like you're some greasy car salesman. Sorry if you're a car salesman. Not all car salesmen are greasy. Let's have that picture of Matilda in my mind and her dad. Anyway, um, you're not, right? What are you doing? You're just bearing witness in your words and your deeds like Maddie talked about last week. You start with prayer. And listen, a light on a hill Some people are drawn to the light. And some people are repelled by it. Some are drawn and some are driven away. And the church is growing and persecuted at the same time. And so you and I don't control outcomes. People have free will. They have agency. They're loved deeply by God. They do deserve your, your respect and your love and your compassion and your dignity. But they have free will and agency. And so you and I are simply called to bear witness, not to make converts. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3. He said, I have come to find it in following Jesus and knowing Jesus that it's worth losing everything for. Since all of my life, everything else in my life, he said, you can just throw it in the garbage heap because it doesn't even compare to the amazing love of God and following Jesus. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? We said it over and over again to organize our life around three very distinct things. Number one, to be with Jesus. Number two, to become like Jesus. And number three, to do what Jesus did. And these are not linear. These are not one step after the other necessarily. But can I encourage you and remind you that it's really hard to become like Jesus and do what he did when you don't share in the intimacy of being with him? If you go read through Luke, Peter, James, John, those guys spent a couple of years with Jesus before he sent them out. Not to say that you and I sit and wait to bear witness until we're ready. That's not at all the posture. But at the same time, there's something to the reality that intimacy with Jesus like Maddie was talking about, begins to drip into the places where we live, work, and play. And so let me leave you with this quote today as we wrap up our time. David Benner said that St. Ignatius of Loyola notes that sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Let's just read it again. Sin is our unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Until I am absolutely convinced of this, I will do everything I can to keep my hands on the controls of my life because I think I know better than God what I need for my fulfillment. And happiness, maybe not defined in the context of the American dream, but something much deeper. And so if Jesus really was God, he really did live, die, was buried, and rose again, then maybe the things that he said are trustworthy and true. But I believe it starts here, that if you and I can't trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness, we will trust to surrender the things that we've been holding on to. So here's a couple of next steps for you, and then we'll sing together. 
Just two questions to, to pray through today. Where am I struggling to trust God? Maybe you're a follower of Jesus in the room and there's just some things in Scripture that ruffle your feathers and you feel pressure around and this is hard and that's challenging. I don't know what to do with that and this makes me uncomfortable and I don't want to give up this thing and I still want to do it my way. Is there any area that you're struggling to trust God? Or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus in the room and the trust is founded in very simply, is he good? Can he give me new life? Can he save me and forgive me of sin? Is there actually life in this way of Jesus? And the second question might be, where do I need to surrender control? Because none of us are above that, right? None of us have just given it all. None of us have just taken up our cross completely. Like all of us, man, our hands are just death gripped on some things. And if you're like me, sometimes you don't even know that your hands are, are on that thing until the Holy Spirit reveals it to you and you're like, oh, dang. So what is it for you? And again, maybe for you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's surrendering control of your life, trusting Jesus as King, as Lord, to follow him. But others as the followers of Jesus might be surrendering control in a different area. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing and I'm just going to invite you to respond. So let's uh, just take a moment. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. This is just a moment of privacy for you. privacy for me. You don't have to worry about anybody else looking around, but Holy Spirit, we want to take some time and invite you. To accomplish your agenda in our hearts and minds. That our hearts would begin to lean in and believe. that what you want for us as you invite us to follow you is our true happiness. But like Jesus said, life to the full, the truly good life. Would you help us to trust you today in that space? For my friends in the room that are wrestling with faith, trying to figure out where they land with you, Jesus, would you overwhelm them with your love this morning and your grace and help them to trust in you? For my friends in the, in the room that are followers of Jesus, would you fill them with your spirit and boldness? Would they surrender to you and your way? Would you identify in our hearts this morning, where do we need to surrender control? What is it that we need to let go of? And as you fill us with your spirit and with new life, would you allow us to boldly bear witness in the world around us because your love is so great and every person is worth it. It's in Jesus' name, amen.